0: We have a good number of people in here this morning, I believe, who uh, have a French heritage, correct? Yep, I expected we. <laughs> yeah, French was such a beautiful language, I don't know. <laughs> we are in 1 Samuel chapter 17 this morning. Saul is still king. And yet he has, for all intents and purposes, he's been dethroned. And yet he is still king. But he's been dethroned and not by an uprising of his subjects or by a coup of opposition party or military, but by the hand of God himself. Saul was never God's choice for king, but God gave the demanding people of Israel exactly what they were demanding, exactly what they wanted. And there's a cliche that I think probably we are all familiar with that says, be careful what you wish for, you know, the rest of it, because you just might get it. This is as close as that coming true as anything I can think of. Saul is still king, as I mentioned, but the Lord has removed the Holy Spirit from his presence. This is all from uh, last week's material. And by the Lord removing the Holy Spirit from Saul meant that he was no longer privy, if you will, to godly counsel. He was not even allowed, rightly, to even go to Samuel the high priest and the prophet. And that's one reason why, later on in this book, Saul becomes very desperate in trying to seek out wise counsel, and he ends up going to a medium, a fortune teller, if you will, a conjurer. That's for another week. So the Lord then, on top of removing the the Holy Spirit, sends to Saul an evil spirit to torment him. To the end of his days, which comprises symptomatically drastic mood swings, fits of rage, acts of violence, and murderous intentions toward the one that he actually liked and who would be his replacement, David. So how do you get relief from affliction that is truly demonic? Well, the Lord provided David, in a certain irony there, to play Saul some music on his harp and his lyre, which would calm the wicked spirit that was sent to torment Saul. And what we have in Saul is the one from whom the Spirit of God had been removed, being soothed by the one to whom the Spirit of God now, having been anointed by God as the next king, the Holy Spirit. In the words of that famous theologian Ted Theodore Logan, Bill, strange things are afoot at the Circle K. We begin in 1 Samuel chapter 17. I've excised just a sentence or two for the sake of time. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. And then a champion, and that's not a some kind of... Contemporary interpretation. It's, it's really gives a good idea of the Hebrew there. Then a champion came out from among the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height we are told was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron, roughly 15 pounds. His shield carrier also walked before him. And so he stood there and he shouted to the ranks of Israel and he said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? (laughs) Meaning, you know who I am. And you guys belong to that loser, Saul. So here's what I'm going to do. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. And again, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. I'm going to take now a minor excursus regarding the person of Goliath. Goliath is considered by many, as we know, just a complete myth. By most people, he's considered to be a legend. He's, he's merely an embellished character that's in a story or in a parable, for sure, who may have possibly been based on a real person, but has been exaggerated to symbolize the giant Enemy, the giant situation or the giant challenge that is besetting anyone at any given point in time. Well, while there may be legitimate literary use to such a form and such a kind of character, as for example in Greek mythology, perhaps Goliath of Gath was, did I say Gath? <laughs> Goliath of Gath was a real historical individual. But because of biblical critics, there has developed this fairy tale quality, and it's been imposed upon him, and, and critics and scholars love to rip on him, along with other guys in the Bible, like Jonah in the story of the big fish, or Joshua marching around the city of Jericho, and just by marching they collapsed the walls, and Elijah being taken up to heaven in a chariot, The fact that Goliath is very real as described is probably the main reason his description that I just read is perhaps, in the scholarship of Ronald Youngblood, the most detailed physical description of anyone found in Scripture, which begs the question, so was he a giant? Well, if you mean a jack-in-the-beanstalk, Kind of giant, (laughs) then no. But he was a giant by anatomical description, absolutely. There are differences, however, admittedly, in various sources of literature, including the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament on exactly how tall Goliath was. But part of that, and probably most of that, is because by definition, a cubit is very variable. And according to what we're given in the scriptures about his height, he's somewhere between nine feet, nine feet six, nine feet nine, perhaps. So, I don't know what you would call that kind of a person, but I would call him Taylor Bacon, among other (laughs) things. But this isn't, sorry buddy, this isn't as fantastical as it may sound, because some of you in here, no offense, are old enough to possibly remember a man named Robert Wadlow, who died in 1940 at the height of 8 feet 11 inches, just one inch shy of 9 feet. And, of course, there have been numerous others throughout the generations. The details of the narrative related to Goliath's size lead one to believe that he was, in fact, an honest-to-goodness legitimate giant. And this Goliath now is out there and he meets the Israelites and he challenges to them to a contest of champions. Now, I'm not just being cute there. That is the actual terminology used in the language, a contest of champions. And it was not at all uncommon in the day. It was not a duel, one person against the other person where they're settling a personal grudge, but rather it was sort of what, you, what I would call representational warfare, meaning winner takes all. And instead of going out onto the battlefields and, and you know seeing hundreds and thousands massacred and slaughtered, find out who's going to win, they would arrange a contest of champions and they would say, look, okay, let's do it. If you win, here's what I'll do, just like he spelled out. If I win, here's what you guys agree to do. One person is killed in the process, it's all nice and clean, ipso facto, bingo, bango, bongo, and it's all done. So the safer course of action is to establish a contest of champions. And of course, the official sponsor of such contests was none other than the breakfast of champions. The contest of champions is then laid out before the Israelites, and understandably, they are freaking out. Verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among the men. Three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn and the second to him Abinadab and the third Shammah. David was the youngest and the smallest. Again, we met all these people last week. Now the three oldest, namely Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah, followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. Now remember that when Samuel was to begin his search under direction of God Almighty, his search, that is, for Saul's successor, for the next king, right out of the gate, what we saw last week, is that as soon as Jesse's first son presents himself, Samuel was no more astute than the people of Israel had been in the reasons for which they selected Saul as king in the first place. Samuel meets the first of Jesse's son, and because he liked the way he looked, he presumed, here must be the new king. But the Lord stops Samuel in his tracks, and he reminds him with those words that carry meaning and application through the ages. Do not look at his appearance or at his height of his stature, for God sees not as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The very same mistake that the people of God made in selecting Saul, Samuel was about to repeat. And after reviewing the sons, after he's, he's assuming it's complete, the Lord has not indicated that any of the sons that passed by were to be the ones that Samuel was to anoint. And so he asked Jesse, this is it? I mean, are you, Seems kind of silly. Are you sure you don't have any more sons? Well, Jesse reveals that he does in fact have one more son, but he's kind of the runt of the litter. And on top of that, he's a shepherd, implying that he isn't experienced, he isn't qualified, he isn't even worth considering. He just isn't royal material. But Samuel, with God's, urge, with God's urging, makes him retrieve him. And of course, David is the last one selected in the royal draft pick, going number 199 in the sixth round, and turns out to be the one that the Lord has hand picked to be king. Those numbers I gave you were factual. Tom Brady went as pick number 199 in the sixth round. Coincidental. I don't know. There must be family connection there or something. Well, what we also learn as we go through this is that Saul has kind of a love-hate relationship with David. And Saul, as you can see, looks just kind of like Roger Goodell. I don't know how this stuff happens, but... It's amazing that him... Anyway, so now as we go through this and we read this particular historical narrative as well as others, there are so many situations and details being reported which by themselves seem pretty unimportant. But the Lord again has them there because he wants us to notice certain things. Well, things like what? Well, like the fact, as I read, that the three warriors, David's brothers that I mentioned at the outset by name, they are heading into battle against the Philistines with the now deposed, but still acting like King Saul, while the real king, David, is running around tending the flocks of his father, Jesse, and acting like a butler to his brothers. So again, let's be continually reminded of another life principle from the Bible. The prophet Isaiah says, quoting for God, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. So here we are. We are observers, observers from a distance. And we would see this quite differently were we not in the loop of what is going on behind the scenes. The battle is set between the Philistines and God's royal armies, if you will. And the slaughter is imminent God's hand-picked king, David, is messing around with stupid, smelly sheep while the warriors of Israel are readying to go to battle for the Philistines. And whether that ends up in what we know as a contest of champions or rather a full-scale battlefield, we don't know yet. And they don't know yet. Verse 16, And the Philistine Goliath came forward mourning... And evening for 40 days and he took his stand. Now this is surprising to me. And here's why it's surprising. For 40 days, Goliath is going out there and instead of waging war, he's going out there and he's going, okay, here we are, day 29. I'm giving you a choice here. Send out your mightiest warrior and whichever one prevails, boom, winner takes all. And he does this 40 days and 40 nights. And the reason, again, is surprising to me is because objectively, the Philistines have always been a superior fighting force. They've always outmanned the Israelites. They certainly outarmed their warriors against God's people. But remember, too, that they have had a lot of experience lately, especially with the armies of Jehovah. And in fact, the Philistines just in this book for Samuel are mentioned over 70 times to this point. But their record in battle of late against God's people has been anything but certain because God was clearly fighting for his people. Verse 17. Then Jesse said to David his son, Take now for your brothers an Ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese. This, Huh? to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Now, one commentator that I checked concerning this verse in particular, yet again, reaffirmed that 80% of commentary help seems to always run either completely superfluous or so obvious to the point of uselessness, or just plain silly. This one asserted that that last verse that I just read, let me read it again. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And this commentator asserts that this was very possibly an intentional snub to David. Something on the order of, well, I hope you're having fun with your stinking little animals while your brothers are out fighting in the defense of their country, little man. But this opinion, just even with what we have in front of us, honestly makes no sense. When you consider that from the very beginning of this pericope, the reason that Jesse didn't even want to put David forth as, to Samuel to be considered uh, is because precisely he wasn't warrior material. And again, he was young, and he was little, and he was a shepherd. Which, by the way, being a shepherd did not put you on the A list of social functions. So David be ever so beloved, was for all intents and purposes a domestique. And the domestique is a French word for basically a household maid or a servant or a butler or something of that order. And I use that term in particular because it happens to be a cycling term for the riders on a professional cycling team who are a big part of the team in fact, they are an invaluable part of the team, but they are never expected to win. Their soul sorry, Ronnie their sole purpose of existence and their value to the team is to be. The domestique is to be the attendant in service, if you will, to the star, the hallmark rider of the team who is really the only one on that team that is expected to win. And so they are all there to serve them, to give their guts and their blood in service of him and doing whatever they can. And there's a lot of strategy involved in cycle racing so that he has the best chance possible of crossing the finish line. They are very really the unsung heroes. And what I put up here, just again to show you, is is a picture of Chris Froome. And Chris Froome right now is four-time winner of the Tour de France, kind of the, the gold of all golden uh, cycling events of international cycling. And you see this guy here, I won't talk about him right now, but you see in front is a guy with Sky jersey on. Right behind him is a guy with a yellow jersey. The guy with the yellow jersey is Chris Froome. He is the star. He's the one that is designed to win for Team Sky. And the rider wearing the sky jersey, is there in front because he is one breaking the wind that's hitting them from any direction so that it conserves the energy of the one who needs everything he has to get through across the finish line first. And the team is filled with these domestiques and they take turns taking those places and they protect the lead rider from what are called attacks by the other teams and all that sort of thing. They are totally unsung. They go in there knowing that they are losers in a manner of speaking, but that is their purpose of existence. Just think about Tom Brady, right? Tom Brady wouldn't be much good. In fact, no quarterback would be much good if, he didn't, if they didn't have the unsung heroes in front of them called the offensive line. And I don't recommend calling any of them a domestique, not to their face at any rate. But that is what they are. And so David, the domestique, is sent on a mission by his father to the front In order to bring hors d'oeuvres to his brothers and to bring back a report to daddy on how the fam is doing. Verses 20 to 27, you're not going to have them up there. Um, I'm just going to give a very condensed kind of paraphrase of it. So David runs his errands. He goes out to the battlefield doing exactly what Jesse wanted him to do, where a Goliath now again is out there shouting his taunts and his challenges against the armies of God. And David asks very genuinely and very innocently, so what's in this for the winner? Because right now, one of the reasons... Goliath's been out there for 40, or will be out there for 40 days, is nobody in Israel's army has said, I'll do it. And you can't blame them. So David's brother, Eliab, is super ticked off at baby brother. And his comment to David is completely an insult. Why have you come here? Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you've come down in order to see the battle. You're a rubbernecker. You're a voyeur. You've come down to see the excitement from the safe positions, to see all the excitement and the fun and the blood and the guts. This is what he's accusing little brother of. And verse 29, though, is ever so enlightening. David says, "What have I done now?" <laughs> was it not just a question? If any of you in here are a little brother, okay? I was a little brother, right? Meaning you have a big brother, if you need some help on that. You know that refrain, "What have I done now?" Oh, I had this uh this this uh funny little thing that little brothers do. My brother would make, this is back in the days when we did things like made airplane models and car models out of plastic kits with, you know, 500 pieces and all that stuff, very detailed and intricate. I didn't have the patience for that. Mine looked like a glue pile. So my brother, he did, and he had like a B-52 bomber, you know, sitting up on one of his shelves, okay? So one, I go into his room one day and I'm looking at that, and I don't remember how old I am, but I'm looking at it and I'm like, and I'm just playing with it, you know, flying it around and stuff. And I thought, I bet I could fly this to his bed. This is not meant to fly at all, right? So I take his little B-52 bomber and I kind of, and I was being gentle because I, you know, I wasn't completely stupid. And I went like this to, and of course, landing gear, boom, wing, boom, something else. So that's no problem because when you're a little brother, man, you've got this all scoped out. So I go, I know what I'll do. My brother is an idiot. It's what you think, right? I'll take the model. I'll put it right back where it was. And I'll stick the wing on just like that and put it there. And I'll prop up the landing gear underneath. So now when my brother comes in one day and he goes to just move the plane or pick it up, it's going to fall apart. And he's going to think, golly gee, how did I do that? Right? No. Yeah. It's not the way. And it's not the way it worked out. I owed my older brother all that I know about self-defense, but more about being fast. (laughs) He was three and a half years older than me. That was not a fair fight. David is not being a punk here. He's being a very dutiful domestique. He is doing what the domestique is supposed to do. So David's question about the reward for the one that's able to win the contest of champions makes its way back to the no longer king, but acting like king, Saul. And Saul says, bring him to me. Verse 33. Then Saul said to David, You are not able to go against a Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him. And I rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard. Say, what? And, st- I know, and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both lion and the bear. And the uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. So this is not a situation of a voyeuristic little brother this is not a situation where David's ego is writing checks that his body can't cash. The spirit of the Lord is upon him for the deliverance of God's people and the gradual establishment of David's position as the coming king, Saul's replacement. So, key point, and don't miss it. What fueled David's passion and curiosity in the situation is that Anyone would dare, would have the gall, would have the effrontery to defy the army of God. And it wasn't the army of God he was concerned about them insulting, but in in, in, uh, castigating the army of God and deriding them, he was, in fact, deriding and blaspheming the name of the Holy One. David, in righteous indignation, would not allow such an affront to his God go unchallenged. Where David is concerned, it was the Lord's honor that was at stake. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? David's kind of stupefied looking around at all these skilled warriors and everything else, and he's like, that's it? That's all you've got. That's the amount of faith you have about your great God. And he's sitting here and they blaspheming him and you guys are going, oh. Just like that. Oh. And this is the inaugural glimpse that we get of the core of a man who, as we will see, and as you probably know, is very human, meaning very flawed, But he is also very contrite, meaning genuinely, legitimately sorry when he messes up. Not because he's been caught, but because he has offended the God that he loves so much. The Lord, from chapter 13, remember, the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And Saul said to David back to 17, go, have your suicide mission and may the Lord be with you. Now thinking reasonably as Saul is here, but out of step with God, obviously Saul equips David going to do him a favor and he's going to equip him with his armor and his sword, which would have gotten David killed for sure. So David declines the Thoughtful gesture. And he goes out and he grabs what he's used to using in the wilderness when he was tending his father's sheep. David knew his limitations. He knew his ability to slay a lion and a bear were not because of his superior strength or his superior courage or his cunning or his possession of an M17A1, but only because the creator of the universe was the one who is overseeing that challenge and compelling him to do so. So killing a bear with his bare hands and not lying about it was an impossible situation, as impossible as killing the warrior Goliath. I'm sorry you missed those two puns in there, but that's okay. So even as he didn't triumph over the beasts of the the field by strength or by superior armament, neither would he kill the Philistine by battlefield smarts or strength or cunning or anything else. But again, the Philistine blasphemed the name of the Lord and so he must die. So David goes out, and he chooses the feared weapons of the ages, sticks and stones. And the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, (laughs) I would have loved to have seen that look, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. I'm not sure why that's mentioned again at this point in time. The Philistine says to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? (laughs) He should have thought more carefully about that little ditty that started back there with the Philistines. I think with Goliath, sticks and stones may break my bones, but no. And the Philistines cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me. And I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And when David is saying this, believe me, he's not saying this as some some overworked, well-worn cliche, the way certain phrases like this are obliterated and used today so ever flippantly and so ever presumptuously. Oh, in the name of Jesus, I'm claiming this heal, brother. Go away. You've been healed right now. I'm telling you because I prayed in Jesus' name. If the Lord was behind that and truly compelling him to do that, which I know firsthand he does that, but it is not the norm and it is not upon any individual to make those kinds of assumptions because I'm going to use that phrase or some other phrase as sort of a magic little incantation that God is obligated to jump to. No. That's not the way it is, and that's not what's going here, going on here with David. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. Big talk for a little man with short arms. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands." Wow, that is a man of faith. So we think about David and Goliath. A fantastic children's story. If it is, then I apologize for having just wasted your time. David did not approach Goliath in arrogance. Remember, several weeks we talked about what arrogance was. It's having a gravely inflated idea of who you are, of your importance, of your greatness. Now, this is not arrogance taking place here. But you see, when you are convinced and again, I can't tell somebody, well, how do I know that this is really God or, if, you know, it's me talking to myself. Believe me, I have those same struggles. But all I can tell you is that based on my life experience, which is not authoritative, but it is my life experience, there are way more times, way more times. I would not exaggerate if I said hundreds of times when I'm going, Ah, is that the still, small voice? Is that you, Lord? Or is that me? Is that the voice inside my head? Is that just my guilty conscience? Is that whatever it is, okay? I have those same struggles. But I can also tell you, based on quite a few number of situations, that when the Lord was saying something to me, there was no ambiguity, there was no confusion about it. And I can't tell you, well, what was that? So I'll know when it... It's all different ways, shapes, and forms. All I can say is that, look, we're talking about the God of the universe. Through his Holy Spirit, he has the ability to wipe out all those very normal doubts and wanting to just be certain and be sure and letting you know that, no, this is what I want you to do. Okay, I'll do it. That is what is going on here with this little man, David, going in the power of the Lord. And it will happen because God Will bring it to pass. It's a risk. I, at least I feel like it's a risk for me to over allegorize David and Goliath, and again that, con- that, that 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 concept of you know going against giant challenges, you know, in the name of the Lord and and all that, but. But that is legitimate, that is real. And that giant challenge for us in here today, I mean if you're a school teacher in the public schools, you are facing giants in the hallways of your school daily, I know that. Yesterday I was in the parking lot talking to a semi-retired social worker from Kennebunk who came up to buy something from me for her bicycle. And as we got talking, the more we got talking, remember what I said a few weeks ago about judging people? She's from Kennebunk, social worker. She's a lib. She's a lefty. <laughs> so in everything I'm saying to her, I'm like, boy, I'm counting everything, but I'm still trying to, you know, we're there in a church parking lot for crying out loud, right? And as I would take a little step, you know, into that, ooh, this is getting, she'd heighten it. And I'd go, her? And I'd say something else, and she'd elaborate on it in all the right ways. And I'm like, woo! All right. Once again, cripe. Your astute powers of judgment were completely wrong. Will you ever learn? To which I say, probably not. But whatever you are facing in your life, no matter how gigantic, the challenge or the trial, whether it 's financial marital health circumstantial uh, moral it does not matter for if you Act and move and your heart is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. God has committed to you that he will fight your battles if they are rightly motivated and they are consistent with his will and purposes according to his character and his heart and his mind for your life. Don't underestimate that. Barbara and I would never have gone to Auburn, Washington had it not been for God convincing us. Again, how? I I don't know. All I know is that she and I knew we were going before we were even anywhere down that line of interviews and everything else. And even though we didn't want to go, we both knew we were going. When we were on the phone on those long days ago, almost 28 years ago now, Talking to faceless voices over a telephone at a church over Rice Rips Road in a committee interviewing me about coming out to, was- uh, to Washington, coming out here. Barbara and I knew that we were coming out here. And again, if you don't know the story, then they called somebody else. I was back to that mode of what did I misread, Lord? And yet, you know what? Even in my thinking, what did I misread? I knew I didn't misread him. And here I am, like it or not. So I didn't misread him. You see, the Lord can compel us to do that. But you have to go in the name of the Lord and all that that means. That just isn't a slogan. Or a bumper sticker. We serve the creator of the universe and all that that means. And while the world is truly, metaphorically, but literally going to hell, we know that. Truth be told, and I'm only speaking for myself. I don't want, I don't want to be a part of that. (laughs) But by his strength and his conviction, we will conquer. For we have been told that the gates of hell will what? Will never prevail against the body of Christ on earth. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, said Paul to the church at Rome. We're called according to his purposes. Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, I know that all kinds of folks in here with us this morning, Lord, Lord, really do have giant difficulties, challenges, situations in their life that are, that are humanly impossible. But Lord, you just said a word and galaxies were created. No matter what the family of faith here is facing, No exceptions. To you, O God, they are a small thing. And while we don't understand often the extent to which your ways are not our ways, they are nonetheless certain and true and powerful. I pray this morning, Father, you would give faith To that mother, to that father, to that single young man, the single young woman, to the children in the schools, O God, praying, increase their faith to believe, not frivolously for the impossible, but spirit-filled for the impossible, whatever it might be. To the glory and praise of your name, amen.